Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. In a cluttered apartment on West 9th Street in Manhattan, a man hunches over a camera. He's in his early 60s, and his name is Emmerich Jutner. He's slight, barely over five feet tall, with bright blue eyes, a tuft of thinning white hair, and a wispy mustache. When he smiles, which is often, it is with a toothless grin. It's 1938. Times are hard for Emmerich Jutner, and just about everyone else. The United States finds itself in the throes of a deep economic recession. Industrial production has plummeted, leaving millions of Americans, the aging Jutner included, unemployed and increasingly desperate. In Europe, where Jutner was born, fascism has taken hold, and it feels like another global war is all but inevitable. The whole world tears apart at the seams, and there's not much left holding it together. But you would never know it if you were lucky enough to meet Emmerich Jutner. He's happy and affable, kind and gregarious, a friend and companion to everyone he meets. In this moment, though, while hunched over the camera, he's serious and focused. Under his lens is a US $1 bill. He meticulously frames the note, working with an impenetrable patience and dexterity to get it just right. He must capture every little detail in perfect focus. He ignores the chaotic symphony of scrap and junk heaped around his apartment, junk he collects on the streets of Manhattan in hopes of selling it for whatever he can get. Sometimes what he spends hours gathering is barely enough for a loaf of bread. A restless terrier nudges at his feet and yaps. It's almost feeding time, and the hungry dog wants to make sure Jutner doesn't forget, but Jutner waves the dog away. He snaps a picture of the front of the bill. He then, with great care, flips the bill over and takes a picture of the back. Using a homemade acid bath, he later transfers the two images to a pair of zinc plates. He carefully fills in some of the smaller details by hand that were not captured by his camera. An incomplete border, a blurred number, some of the texture on George Washington's face. In his mind, he works with the careful attention of Michelangelo on the Sistine Chapel. He takes his time. He doesn't want to mess this up. When he's satisfied, he transfers the zinc plates to a small hand-driven printing press that he keeps in the kitchen. There, he makes several replicas of the U.S. $1 bill. Counterfeit copies which he then hangs up to dry on a clothesline he threads across the kitchen. He picks up his dog, scratches it behind the ears, 
and then takes a moment to nod in admiration of all of his hard work. The result of his meticulous counterfeiting? Well, it's... it's bad. Like, really, really bad. Remember Leonardo DiCaprio in Catch Me If You Can? Well, Emmerich Jutner is the opposite. The paper he uses is the cheap and flimsy sort that can be bought just about anywhere in New York. The borders, numerals, and lettering of his counterfeit dollar bills are uneven and sloppy. His portrait of George Washington, as the New Yorker would later describe it in the profile of Yutner's work, is, quote, murky and death-like. Yutner's dollar bills are so bad that when the Secret Service eventually gets wind of them, They think the bills are the work of a more sophisticated counterfeiter who is actually deliberately mocking them with such a laughable product. In reality, though, it's just amateur hour, through and through. Yutner stares at the first counterfeit dollar quite intrigued. What he doesn't realize at that moment is that he ironically struck gold. You see, ultimately, the quality of Yutner's fake dollar bills doesn't even matter. The sheer genius behind this hunched-over, older European gentleman is that he's daring to counterfeit what most criminal masterminds would simply ignore. The $1 bill. Who pays attention to a dollar during a transaction? Even in 1938? Nobody. That's who. And that's what makes his weird experiment that day so impactful. What Yutner also doesn't know during this fateful day is that for the next decade, he's going to be able to pass off his bogus bucks as real all over New York because nobody can be bothered to take a look at them until it's too late. Between 1938 and 1948, Emmerich Yutner will pass off roughly 7,000 of his terribly fake, atrociously awful dollar bills across New York City. That's over $140,000 in 2022 money. And if it wasn't for some rat who ultimately gives him away, he probably could have gone on for as long as he wanted. Yetner continues to stare at his first foray into the counterfeit business. Does he really have the guts to spend it? I mean, times are tough, but break the law? How did he get here? How does this unassuming 61-year-old immigrant maintenance worker and junk collector become the worst yet so incredibly successful counterfeiter in U.S. history? One who would go on to elude the Secret Service for over a decade. Well, we'll get to that. But for now, all you need to know is, for Emmerich Yetner, it's all about the Washingtons, baby. History happened. The good, bad, the ugly... This is the underside of history, the lesser-known pieces lost in the bigger picture of time. From the creators of myths and legends and from cast media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join us every episode as we explore the dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. Emmerich Yutner is born in January of 1876 in Austria, the eldest child of a working-class family. As a young child, he exhibits talents in science and dreams of crossing the Atlantic one day to move to the United States. There, he can pursue his skills in the land of real inventors like Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bell. In June of 1890, that dream becomes a reality, and 14-year-old Emmerich Yutner arrives in New York City. He brings to America the ambitions and dreams of a grand future— 
a new century approaches, it will be a new era of great technological change. Steam and electricity, urban development, the automobile and the radio, and sweeping innovations that forever change how modern life is lived. Emmerich Jutner can see it coming, sense it in every pore of his body, and he has ideas, lots of them. When he steps off the boat in his new country and he sees the great shadow of the Statue of Liberty and the gleam of the new skyscrapers looming over the water, Emmerich Jutner knows what the future holds in his new home. He plans to meet it with ideas of his own. He will be an inventor and he will make it big in America. But to be somebody in America, you need to know somebody. And Emmerich Jutner knows nobody. His first years as an immigrant are spent in uncertain, unceasing toil as he tries to get his career started. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shores he had seen inscribed on the Statue of Liberty when he arrived. But what are these huddled masses supposed to do when they get here? He finds himself wondering often. What he needs is a blueprint, some kind of direction to where he's supposed to be. No one ever gives Emmerich Jutner the answer, but he eventually finds work as a frame gilder at a small print shop in Manhattan. That's where he's working in 1902, when he hears the bell of the shop door, when it rings to announce the arrival of a new customer. Jutner looks up from his workstation, and his life is never the same again. The most beautiful woman he has ever seen enters the shop. A warmth comes over him, he feels a sense of peace that he's not felt since Austria. He stands up straight and wipes his hands on his apron. He catches his image in a reflection on some glass. He attempts to discreetly, but unsuccessfully, wet his fingers with his mouth and then run them through his hair to put the disheveled strands back in their place. For a moment, he feels like a foolish boy when he remembers the thin strands of a sparse mustache on his face. How may I help you? he asks in his crisp Austrian accent. I would like a frame, the woman says as she approaches. Like him, she is short with thick blonde hair and blue eyes. He sees a bit of home in her. Though he does not know her name, he feels as if every day lived in each other's absence was merely to bring them to this moment. One future has arrived and he will not squander it. When he shows her the various options for frames, their hands brush against each other. Her name is Flores Lamine, and they will be married within the year. They will love each other to the end. Rarely will a day go by that they do not spend in bliss in each other's company. Yetner continues his work in the shop, but he never gives up on the dreams of being a great inventor like the giants whose newfangled creations power the kinetic city he now calls home. In the evenings, with Florence's encouragement, he works on the designs he believes will make life easier for everyone in the city. Everyone who struggles, just like him and Florence. They set up a workstation built from scrap wood gathered from around the city in their tiny tenement room in Manhattan. For hours every night, Jutner lets his imagination run wild. Often, the couple struggles to afford electricity, so Jutner works by candlelight Florence brings him coffee, rubs his shoulders, and speaks him back into confidence whenever he begins to falter. Yetner never has the big breakthrough he dreams about so often, but he does come close. In 1905, at the age of 29, Yetner has an idea for a new kind of camera. He sends the blueprints to the Eastman Kodak Company, 
the premier manufacturer in the country. Though they don't think Yetner's invention is commercially viable, they're impressed enough with his design to send him a letter praising his extraordinary ingeniousness. It's a letter that Yetner keeps for the rest of his life. He shows it to friends and family any chance he gets, and it's there by his side in 1938, though by then it has become frayed and yellowed with the passing decades when he hunches over a camera to counterfeit a dollar bill for the first time. He also designs a refashioned Venetian blind that works just like any old window shade. In Yetner's words, you didn't have to pull a string this way and that way to make her go up and stay up. You just give her a twitch, like you do with window shade, and she'd go up and stay up. Or you just pull her down and she'd stay down. It was simple, my Venetian blind. It's a wonderful design that impresses friends, family, and factory owners alike. But much to everyone's chagrin, it never made it to market. And Yetner and his wife continue to struggle. The Yetners eventually have two children, a daughter, Florence, and a son, Walter. And then things have to change. It's one thing to live hand to mouth as a young couple, but it's quite another to force young children to live under the life of a struggling inventor. One evening, while their daughter sleeps sound in the crib and Florence sits next to him, pregnant with Walter, Yutner announces that he's putting his designs on hold. He holds his wife and says, it's time for something more stable. We cannot go on like this. She asks if he's sure. She says they will be with him no matter what he decides. Some dreams are best left as dreams, Yetner says. And to grow old well is to know what is to be real and what is to be fantasy. It is no longer a time for dreams. It's time to live for our children. Don't be a scoundrel like Emmerich Yetner. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know of a scoundrel you'd like us to cover. Maybe we'll choose yours. Special thanks to The Jordan Harbinger Show for sponsoring today's episode. Here's a show that's for anyone and everyone who likes high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. Which is pretty much everyone, right? (laughs) It is. Jordan covers a wide array of topics through weekly interviews with big-hitting guests. And if you need help deciding where to jump in, maybe try Jordan's conversations with Dwayne Wade about life being bigger than basketball or Chris Hadfield on an astronaut's guide to life on Earth. Those are both great episodes to start with. And what you'll find is that Jordan moves the conversations to really interesting places. With Chris Hadfield, for example, it's space, sure. But they also talk about fear, imposter syndrome, I want to be versus I want to turn myself into. Those are very different. And it's like that no matter which guest Jordan has on. It's more than you might think. And there's something useful to hear every time. Very interesting. Truly, there's an episode for everyone, no matter what you're into. We really enjoy this show and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode is sponsored by Honey, the easy way to save when shopping on your iPhone or computer. Which is basically the only way I shop these days. I don't have to go anywhere. I can see all my options in one place. And then, of course, you have the discount codes. If you can keep track of them, that is. Fortunately, Honey takes all the manual work out of the equation. I just activated it in my browser. So now every time I shop, the little Honey button appears. I click apply coupons and enjoy the savings. That's how we save $29 on pool inflatables and goggles. on sandals, and $12 on poolside pizza. Can you believe it? 
because we couldn't seemed way too easy and too good to be true. But hey, that's Honey for you. It's easy to use and you'll be amazed at your savings. Oh, and Honey doesn't just work on desktop. It works on your iPhone too. Just activate it on Safari on your phone and save on the go. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting the show. I'd never recommend something I don't use. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash scoundrel. That's joinhoney.com slash scoundrel. It's nearly the 1920s. And Jutner, now in his 40s, quits his job at the print shop and begins to work as a live-in maintenance man at an apartment building. It's a hard job, and it leaves him without the energy to tinker and invent. But the job gives the family an apartment, rent-free. Their children are able to go to school and live as children should live, and have a life neither he nor Florence had when they were young. Jutner does not become cynical, though. He doesn't regret his decision, and he doesn't blame his lot in life on anyone. If anything, he becomes more joyous and more caring for those around him. One Christmas evening, the Yetner family delights in the holiday in their kitchen. They have just a roast, cooked together by Emmerich and Florence, and there's little left but scraps on their plates. The smell of the savory feast wafts in the air, and it's with full bellies that they soak up the love they have for each other. His daughter sits in Yetner's lap while his son plays with his new toys on the floor. Florence leans back in a kitchen chair as a smile flows across her face. A soft, timid knock at the door. Yutner lifts his daughter off his lap and goes to see who it is. It's a tenant, a young single mother he has come to know well in recent months. She says she's so sorry to bother him, but she could really use his help. It's Christmas, she knows, but she doesn't know who else to ask. Yutner looks back to his wife. She nods to him, as if to say, do the right thing as you always do, Emmerich. We'll still be here when you get back. He goes with the young mother to her apartment. There, he finds all the markers of the poverty he once lived in. Frayed shoes by the door, teetering chairs and warm pots and pans in the kitchen, more rust than iron on them. On the floor sits her son. He's despondent over an electric toy train that is stalled. Do you think you could fix it, she asks. It took months for her to save up for it, and it stopped nearly as soon as they started it. Without a word, Yetner goes to the basement of the building to get his tools. When he returns, he gets straight to work. He treats his repairs of that electric toy train as if it's the most important thing he could ever do on Christmas evening. I am so sorry to bother you with something so unimportant when you should be with your family, the mother says. Her voice wavers. There's a thin pool of tears in her eyes that will soon flow down her face when she can no longer hold it in. Kittner looks up to her and says with a grin, who's to say what's important and what's not? You've done this for your son because you love him, so it should work. As Yutner leaves the apartment, he looks back at the child playing with the newly repaired train, his face glowing in wonder. Yutner smiles, but it's followed by a quick pang. He was once that child who marveled in all things technological, who dreamt of one day growing up to invent something great, to build something, anything that would have an impact. Yutner is immediately brought back to reality from the ghosts of Christmas past, to what his life is now. He has created nothing. He smiles sadly to the mother, 
and rejoins his family. And that's how Emmerich Yutner lives for the next two decades. He lives his life with kindness, love, and compassion for his family and everyone he meets. He is, as another tenant would later say, a man who brings dignity everywhere he goes. Through the Roaring Twenties, the Yutner children grow into adults and start lives of their own. Florence gets married and moves out of the city. Walter takes a job on Long Island. Emmerich and Florence are sad to see their children go, but they are proud of who they have raised. They grow older too. Yutner's hair grows thin, that mustache wispy, and every passing year finds him another tooth short of a full set. But he has his Florence, his dear Florence. Then the Great Depression comes, times get hard. Everyone in the Manhattan apartment building struggles, and the Yutners see tenants and friends alike slide into destitution and poverty. Their own money doesn't go as far as it once did, but they remain frugal, tighten their belts, and make do. One morning in 1937, Florence wakes up with a cough. It's one unlike anything she's had before. It's sharp and cutting. It slices right through her lungs and leaves her wheezing. It's persistent, too. She wakes up with it, eats breakfast with it, goes about her day with it, and it's still there, keeping her awake at night when she tries to sleep. It's dry and rough, and though she won't say it to Emmerich, she knows it's something serious. She hopes it'll just go away, but it doesn't, and she senses it never will. After a week of insistent coughing, Emmerich, now 61, takes Florence to a clinic, and there a doctor tells her that it's not good. If they had caught it earlier, they might be able to treat her and alleviate her pain. Things are now too advanced, though. It's too late. She doesn't have much time. Soon, nearly all of Florence's strength dissipates. Her lungs are on fire. Just getting from the bedroom to the kitchen becomes a major ordeal. She has to lean on Emmerich's shoulders to get there. To him, she feels almost hollow. She is a vanishing shadow of the woman that he loved so deeply. And each soft shuffle of her feet across the floor reminds him of all they had together that will soon be but memories. One evening there in bed, Florence rests her head on Emmerich's chest. Her breaths are faint and infrequent. With each thin gasp Florence makes at air, Emmerich runs his fingers through her hair or kisses the top of her head. He talks to her of their lives together, of their favorite memories and of their children, of the electric buzz he felt the day in the print shop, of the happy mornings with their children's laughter filling up the small rooms. Each day was beautiful, Emmerich whispers. All of it. Emmerich squeezes Florence closer. He feels her slipping away. She's become so thin in just a few weeks, he worries she might float up into the sky above them if he lets go. Florence's breathing becomes less frequent, thinner, sometimes 30 seconds, sometimes a minute between inhales. There's a stuttering breath, a desperate gasping at the air to bring it, and then Florence goes quiet. Emmerich knows she's gone. Emmerich kisses Florence on her head. Sleep well, he says. 
I'll see you in my dreams. Yutner and his children bury Florence later that week. He goes on because he must. He continues with his work. He fixes sinks and squeaky door hinges. He seals windows letting in drafts. He maintains his composure and dignity with the building's tenants. At night, though, he mourns in private. Yutner cries. He laughs. And more than anything, he realizes that he's alone. In 1938, the Depression shows no signs of letting up. There's no economic respite for Yutner. His wages don't increase. He finds that his money doesn't go nearly as far as it once did. Bread, butter, and milk, the necessities of life, become more and more of a burden on his income. His pantries get a little empty, and his trousers a little looser, when he can no longer afford to eat as he once did. He knows he's aging, too. He doesn't know how much longer he can rely on the maintenance work. At some point, his body will no longer be able to tolerate the up and down, the twisting and turning, the bending down and up again. So he builds himself a wooden cart and goes about finding ways to supplement his income. He pushes the cart all over Manhattan. He pushes it to vacant lots where he digs for scrap wood, copper, and iron. Anything he can sell. He pushes it to the alleyways where he digs through rubbish and trash. Sometimes he's lucky, and he'll find a discarded ring or even a candelabra he can sell at a pawn shop. But mostly, he finds nothing. He sells some of what he can put together, and what he can't, he stacks around his apartment. Soon, his living space is a maze full of flotsam and jetsam from anonymous New Yorkers. His children know his struggle. They've both become comfortably middle class. When they come to visit him, they implore him to move out of the apartment. They offer him money, but... Yutner always refuses. Father, it is nothing at all, his son tells him one morning. Father, come live with us. You don't have to live like this, his daughter tells him another. <laughs> Nonsense, he tells them both. I came to this country to make it on my own, and I intend to do so. It's lonely work, so Yutner gets a dog to keep him company. It's a little terrier that's devoted to him from the moment they meet. The dog follows him everywhere into the vacant lots and the alleyways, down the avenues and boulevards, across all of Manhattan, as they, like so many others in New York during the 1930s, search for anything that will keep them housed and fed. One day, Yutner and his dog take a full cart to the scrapyard. He's filled it up with copper, brass, and aluminum from all over Manhattan. He's not as strong as he once was, so he balances the cart gingerly on his way to the yard. He stops before the foreman and plops down the cart. With a wave, he presents what he's scrounged up. The foreman shuffles through the cart. He picks up pieces to inspect closely. Many of them he tosses with nonchalance to the ground. Not this, he says. This is no good. I've got too many of these already. When it's all said and done, the foreman only takes a couple pieces and leaves the rest in a pile at Yutner's feet. He offers Yutner a dollar for what he's chosen. That's it, Yutner wonders aloud. Just a lousy dollar? Now, as you've probably noticed from all the episodes of this show that you may have listened to at this point, all of our scoundrels have a creation myth. That moment where they take an eventful leap, squeeze the evil toothpaste out of the crime tube, and officially break bad. The following is that moment. Back at his apartment, Yetner stares at the crumbled dollar given to him by the stingy foreman. He gazes at it with an intensity 
as it sits on his dining room table. How is he, an old man in his 60s at this point, going to get more of those? He smiles at the simplicity of the concept of wealth. It really is pretty easy. All he needs to do is take that measly piece of paper that sits on his table, that dirty green thing that seems to make the entire world go round, and that's brought the entire world to its knees, and have more of them. But how? Suddenly, Yetner's smile disappears. He thinks of something, and it's not funny, it's the farthest thing from funny. It's so unfunny that it could put him in jail for the rest of his life. He quickly shakes it off, but could he? I mean, physically? He's built cameras and Venetian blinds. Does he actually have the skill set to counterfeit a dollar bill? Never one to back down from a self-imposed challenge, Yetner decides to do something. Call it a goof, call it a lark. He quickly pulls a worn camera from the scrap pile in his apartment. He scrounges together what cash he has left and buys some paper and zinc plates. He sets up an acid bath and a hand-driven printing press in the kitchen, and he gets to work, it, you know, as a goof. He places the taunting dollar under the camera lens and carefully frames it. He photographs both sides of the bill. He transfers the images to the zinc plates. He prints out his counterfeits and hangs them to dry. Yitner stares at his work. We know in retrospect that it is horrible. I mean, the quality of the work, that is. Remember all the fuss we made at the opening about how bad Yutner's dollar looked? Well, not to Yutner. To him, it's his best work. But he's not convinced. What's the point of making something if it has no utility? Edison, Bell, they invented things that people rely on and use every day. Sure, they invented things that helped to make them a lot of money. But did they ever actually invent, well, money? Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Yitner looks at his new dollar, at George Washington. Suddenly, his eyes narrow. Yitner had trusted men like him. Come to this country and all your dreams will come true. Yitner's been here all of his life, and now in his old age, he's nearly destitute. He knows what he needs to do. Yitner quickly takes the fake bill off the line and shuffles it into his wallet, next to a couple of authentic dollars. He's off to test his work. Yetner goes to a shop around the corner. There, he asks for a cigar and a box of matches. He hands the cashier his fake dollar and two real dollars. The cashier takes the bills. When he counts them, one of them feels a little thin. 
maybe a little more worn and discolored than the ones he's used to, but he doesn't question it. Keep the change, Yetner says. I don't need it. The cashier thanks him, and then Yetner is on his way. On his way home, Yetner can't believe it. It actually worked. As Yetner comes back to his apartment, he celebrates. He did it. Just then, he locks eyes with a photo of Florence. She looks at him the only way she could. Yetner looks away. He's got more funny money to make. Now, just as we described Yetner as a very amateur Leonardo DiCaprio in Catch Me If You Can, every counterfeit capper needs the other side. The cop who chases down the criminal. The Tom Hanks. And we sure have that here. A lot of them. You see, later that day, the cashier that Yetner gave his fake buck to empties out the day's revenue from the till into the deposit bag. He drops off the bag at the bank on his way home and never thinks of the transaction with Yetner again. The next morning, a clerk at the bank opens the deposit bag from the corner store. When she's counting the money, one note catches her eye. The paper just doesn't look right. And when she looks a bit closer, she notices that the borders are uneven. Some of the numbers are blurred. How could anyone ever accept this note? She wonders. She flags the bill as potentially counterfeit, as she's been trained to do, and forwards it to her manager. Her manager confirms her suspicions and then sends the note to the NYPD. At the NYPD, Yetner's note lands on the desk of a veteran detective. When he sits down to work in the morning with a fresh cup of coffee, he can't believe what he sees. He picks up the fake note and rubs it lightly against his fingers. It's so thin that it almost tears apart from the friction against his skin. This has to be some kind of joke, he thinks to himself. Someone here's pulling my leg, right? The detective glances around the office. He's alone. There's no one around the corner snickering at the prank note that they placed on his desk. And so he gets to work. Uh, what the heck, he thinks. This one should be easy. He examines the counterfeit dollar and then begins compiling his notes on the case. When he's finished, the detective passes his notes to his superior, who passes it on to his superior, and on it goes until the file arrives at the Secret Service headquarters in Washington, D.C. There, the case of the shoddy dollar bill, as all counterfeit cases do, arrives on the desk of Frank J. Wilson, the chief of the Secret Service of the United States. He is not amused, either. Looking through the notes from the NYPD, he can't believe this is a real case that he has to spend energy on. Wilson prosecuted Al Capone. He was one of the agents who investigated the infamous Lindbergh kidnapping. Now he's tasked with investigating a counterfeit dollar bill that looks like it was forged by a distracted kindergartner during recess. He begins to write up the official case. This opens your file on this new counterfeit, he types. Everything that follows, he imbues with an amused contempt for the forgery that he and his agents must now investigate. He's not impressed, and he wants it known in his notes. This counterfeit is printed on one sheet of cheap bond paper from crude photo etched plates, he continues. The portrait is poorly executed against a black background which fails to show any line work. Wilson writes the case with a resigned critique of an overworked art instructor who has seen too much amateurism. The left eye is represented by a black spot. A heavy line forms the lower lid of the right eye, which is almond-shaped. The seal and serial numbers are printed in a dull indigo. The design and text of the seal are poorly etched. 
Wilson does give Yutner a near compliment at the end of his report, however. The back of this counterfeit, printed in dark green, is of better workmanship than the front. High praise. Thus begins file number 880, and the search for the worst counterfeiter in the United States begins. It will last far longer than the Secret Service could ever imagine. For his part, Yetner is as nonplussed as the Secret Service. But unlike them, he does not ask questions. He goes for it. If it worked once, it could work again. It does. And then a third time. And then a fourth. Yetner comes up with a plan. He doesn't want to get too greedy. He doesn't want to test his luck and push things too far. Yetner decides to only counterfeit dollar bills. He never uses more than one at a time in a single transaction, and he never uses a counterfeit bill at the same location twice. He'll stay small. He'll be modest in his ambitions, and he'll move fast across New York. He knows that if he tries too much, he's sure to be caught. The case ultimately comes to James J. Maloney, the supervising agent of the New York field office of the Secret Service. From the beginning, he and his men are flummoxed. None of this makes any sense. After a few matching counterfeit bills come in, Maloney and his agents bring in former counterfeiters to take a look and assess the forgeries. When one former counterfeiter, a reformed ex-con from Brooklyn, who had once forged for the mob, comes in, he guffaws when he feels Yetner's work in his hands. What are you doing, Maloney? Are you guys joking around here? You've never seen anything like this on the street. Maloney can't believe he's asking. I've never seen such a botched job in my life, the Brooklyn counterfeiter responds. Whoever made this needs to learn some pride. It's a case unlike Maloney and his agents have ever seen, and they will never see anything like it again. Normally, there's really only two kinds of counterfeiters in their experience. There are individuals who work on their own, they counterfeit large bills, 100s and up, and they usually try to hit big once and then disappear. And then there's the mass producers. They usually work for the mob or other underworld networks. They counterfeit fives, tens, and twenties at a large scale to keep the money moving through criminal networks. This counterfeiter, though, he's neither, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Maloney and his men come up with the nickname, Old 88, after the number of the initial file for their counterfeiting suspect. Whenever they try to enter his psychology or profile him a bit to understand his motivations, they always come up at a loss. After a year, the Secret Service receives 585 of Yutner's counterfeit dollar bills. That might sound like a lot, but in terms of monetary value, it's not much. It's less than $2 a day that Yutner's earning with his forgeries. That's a lot of work and a lot of effort for what, according to the Secret Service, does not actually amount to significant monetary fraud. Maloney's team sets up a map of the East Coast on the wall of their office. They put in a red thumbtack at every location where one of these dollars gets through. While some of the bills show up in places like Baltimore or Richmond, almost all the tacks end up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Their forger is local. The agents know his neighborhood. But for some reason, they simply cannot catch him. After 585 forged dollar bills, Yetner does not manage to get any better at counterfeiting. In fact, he gets worse. Another morning in 1938, Maloney sits down at his desk. There, waiting for him, as he's grown accustomed to now, is another dollar bill. 
he recognizes it immediately. The border work is shoddy, the numbers are blurred, George Washington's eyes are vacant black holes of death. When he looks a little closer, Maloney notices something new. This time, Yetner has managed to misspell Washington as Washington. W-A-H-S-I-N-G-T-O-N. Oh my gosh. Maloney mutters to himself when looking at this newest version of the forged dollar. Enough of this. This has got to end. With the arrival of the Washington Bills, Maloney and his agents conclude that the only motivation of Old 88, their elusive forger, is to annoy them. So they try a new strategy. They hit the pavement. They make detailed pamphlets on the forged dollar bills that are circulating around Manhattan. They include explicit instructions and descriptions of the fakes and how to recognize them. They hit just about every corner store in Manhattan. The Secret Service agents post the pamphlets at the tills, on the windows, and on the entrances to the stores. Please just pay a little bit more attention, Maloney implores every clerk and store owner. And maybe, just maybe, we'll finally be able to catch this guy. The pamphlets don't do anything. For the next 10 years, Yutner walks around Manhattan, exchanging his forged bills with impunity. Every step of the way, the terrier is by Yetner's side. Through rain and snow, thunder and lightning, one of those first days of spring, when the ice and snow are at last gone, and you can feel the new season in the air. On hot summer days, when they are too tempted to bust open the fire hydrant, as children do, and get a little respite from the suffocating humidity, Yetner buys cigars and loaves of bread, newspapers and packs of cards, and sometimes even a treat for the terrier, because he's such a good accomplice. Yetner and his dog grow old together. They start to waddle more than walk. They share toothless grins, and their waists expand. Yetner's toward the horizon, and the dog's toward the ground. They are the inseparable kingpins of New York counterfeiting. Old 88 and his trusty companion, excruciating thorns in the side of the Secret Service. In 1948, Yetner stops at a newspaper stand on Wall Street. His dog waits patiently by his side. Yetner grabs that morning's edition of the Times. And when he pays, he hands the man at the till a counterfeit dollar bill. The cashier doesn't even glance at the fake. And when Yetner receives his change, he pockets it and then he and his dog are on their way. At the moment, Yetner does not know it, but his counterfeit bills now account for nearly 5% of all the fake currency in the United States. In a decade, he has cluelessly become one of the most successful counterfeiters to ever live. It's been a decade of old 88, and Maloney is no longer on the case, mostly for his own sanity. He's now the chief of the Secret Service in Washington, D.C., When he gets news that the elusive forger in Manhattan now accounts for 5% of counterfeit bills in the nation, he can't believe it, just as he couldn't believe it the first time he saw one of Yetner's bills. By now, Maloney is convinced that Old 88 will never be caught, and that the unsolved case will go down as one of the Secret Service's greatest embarrassments. That's his legacy, he's sure. From the field officer to station to supervisor to chief, the one man who couldn't catch the terrible yet inexplicably successful counterfeiter in Manhattan. Winter 1948. Yetner wakes up on a cold morning. The windows are frosted and his breath floats above his bed. He gingerly swings his legs off the mattress and into some old slippers. On his way to the kitchen, he stops at the radiator. It's cold. 
He hits it a couple of times with his fists until it moans back to life. In the kitchen, he opens the refrigerator and sees that there's no milk. He grabs his coat and puts on his shoes. The terrier scurries to the door, ready to join Yutner on his errand. He shoos the dog away from the door. Stay, boy. This will be quick. At the corner store, Yetner uses a genuine dollar bill, the first in a long time, to pay for a carton of milk. He makes his way back to his apartment. For a moment, the streets are quiet, and all he hears is the crunching of the ice and snow under his feet. But then, there's a disturbance in the air. Sirens bounce off the walls of the buildings and get louder as he approaches his apartment. When he rounds the corner, he sees smoke rising from his building. It's coming from the same floor as his unit. At the entrance to the building, there's a fire truck and a wall of firemen. Yetner pushes past them, and despite their protests, he scurries into the apartment and up to his unit. There's heavy smoke in the air, flames crawling up the walls. Firemen break the glass and start tossing out the junk and scrap. They move fast and do not discriminate. Everything has got to go if they're going to beat this fire. And then, Yetner sees it. There in his kitchen, his dog. If it wasn't for the chaos of the fire, he would think that his terrier is taking a nap. But in the brief glimpse he gets, Yetner knows. He can feel it in his joints and muscles. His closest companion of the past 10 years is gone. Hey, what are you doing here? A voice cuts through the haze in Yetner's shock. An arm wraps around Yetner's torso and carries him out of the building. A week later, Yetner sits alone at his kitchen table. The windows are now boarded up. There's smoke damage on one of the walls, and the smell of the fire still hangs heavy in the air. It was a rat that caused the fire. It chewed through some wires and set the flames free. Just like that, Yetner's counterfeiting operation is gone. The apartment is now largely empty. The firemen threw almost everything out the window during the fire. And Yutner's now left alone with the ghosts of his memories. The dog, his children, and his Florence are there with him in the heavy silence of his mourning. And though he knows the warmth of their memories, for the first time in over 10 years, he again feels the immense fragility of being so alone. Outside the apartment, children play in the yard. It has just snowed, and under the fresh white coat lay remnants of Yutner's life. Bits and pieces of scrap out there, the camera too, and the zinc bath, now broken in half after being tossed out the window. Hey, what? what's this? One of the children calls out to his friends. He notices a green piece of paper under the snow and pulls it out. He waves it over his head. <laughs> Money! Another child shouts. Oh, we're going to be rich. Later that evening, the children play a game of poker with the counterfeit bills they have found outside Yetner's apartment. Their father enters the room and catches a glimpse of a bill. He takes one and examines it closely in his hands. Where did you get this? The children lead their father to the junk outside the apartment, where he sees the camera and the zinc plates and recognizes them for what they are, a counterfeiting operation. Two days later, the NYPD arrests Emmerich Yutner after the building manager informs them that the junk was thrown from his apartment during a recent fire. Yetner's custody is turned over to the Secret Service soon. When the news reaches Maloney in Washington, D.C., 
he writes back a simple note. These developments please me very much. Gettner denies everything through his interrogation. Oh, come on, Emmerich. An anonymous Secret Service agent implores him. You can't expect us to believe that. We've got everything. It's all right there outside your apartment. If not you, who could it have possibly been? Gettner becomes adamant. It was not him. Thing is, the Secret Service agent continues, we don't even need your confession. We've got enough to put you away for 30 years already. You're over 70. Do you think you'll last long enough to ever leave prison? Eventually, Yetner admits to passing the bills around Manhattan. But have I really done anything wrong? He asks with genuine curiosity. It was at most $15 in a week. I never used a fake more than once at a place. No one ever lost more than a dollar. What's the harm? Yetner never confesses to manufacturing the counterfeit bills, however. He tells the story of a mysterious Henry, a far more experienced criminal, who procured the equipment and paper and simply used Yetner's apartment as his forgery lab. The Secret Service never finds any evidence that a Henry exists, but Yetner sticks to his story and remains consistent. When the trial begins, Yetner is 73 years old. Every day, he wears the same thing, a blue linen shirt and a worn gray suit. He sits silently next to his lawyer and holds a fedora in his hands that he turns over and over again as he listens to the proceedings. From time to time, he smiles at the court stenographer and the bailiff. It's a fast trial. The government has overwhelming evidence against Yutner. There's not much to discuss, and Yutner's found guilty without much debate. When it's time to sentence Yetner, the judge addresses him directly. Herr Yetner, as the judge has come to call him, I am going to send you to jail. Have no doubts about that. What you have done is wrong, indisputably. You will receive a punishment for your actions. In light of your age, however, the sentence will be light. Your punishment will be nine months in prison. <clears throat> it's Yetner's lawyer. He has let out a loud, exaggerated cough. Is there a problem? The judge asks. Your Honor, may I? The attorney asks. The judge waves him to the bench. There, they huddle together while the prosecutor looms just steps away. Your Honor, we appreciate the light sentence. We really do. But under New York state law, if the sentence is one year and one day, my client could then be released after four months, whereas otherwise he would be required to serve the entirety of a nine-month sentence. Do you object? The judge says to the prosecutor. The prosecutor shakes his head. Fine, the judge says. Herr Yetner, I hereby sentence you to one year and one day in the New York State Penitentiary, and you are to pay a fine of one dollar. A fitting fine, I think we should both say. With that, Emmerich Yutner is taken away. He serves his time without incident, and he is released, as promised, after just four months for good behavior. He returns to his Manhattan apartment, where the windows are still boarded and the memories of his past life hang heavy in the air. He sees his children often, and he even sells the rights to his life story to Hollywood to get by. And, at his own insistence, he spends the last years of his life alone in that apartment. He spends much of his time walking the streets of Manhattan. One day, a young reporter recognizes him on the street. 
Mr. Yutner, the reporter says, if I may, you're a notorious man now, a legend of New York and Hollywood. Do you ever think about going back to your life of crime? Yetner flashes a toothless grin. No, he says, there was never enough money in it. Then he's on his way, back into anonymity in Manhattan. But the question remains, why? What forces a gentle, old, kind man like Emmerich Yetner, someone who lived an honorable life of dignity for six decades, to one day break bad and become one of the most notorious sought-after felons in the Secret Service's history? Sure, desperation has something to do with it. He was a man in dire straits, fearful of living in poverty. And that was all too common during the Great Depression. Ignorance has something to do with it, too. Sure, I believe he didn't really comprehend the damage that he was doing. As he said, he had never given more than one bill to anyone, so no single person had ever lost more than a dollar. But putting the babe in the woods excuse aside for a second, there was something far more psychological Emmerich Yetner always subscribed to the American dream. Far from the crippling bureaucracies and encumbering histories of old Austria, the United States guaranteed a blank slate, a blind meritocracy that determined success based solely on dedication and talent. Unfortunately for Yetner, when life got in the way of that determination and that talent never materialized, an anger took its place, an anger that fused nicely with the inventiveness Yutner never got a chance to use. With each Washington that Yutner mangled, it was an ever so slight thumb on the nose to the country that promised him so much, but delivered so little. So the next time you slip your fingers into your wallet or purse and pull out a dollar, think of old Emmerich Yutner. Just try to make sure that it's not an atrocious, awful fake. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Timothy Fosbury. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast. Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here. If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us out. Thank you so much. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.